Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're in verses 11 to 17 today. And this past week, I just kind of had a, a moment where I thought, oh, geez, I wonder when we're going to be done Luke. Uh, we've been in Luke since when? I don't know. Uh, since, since Christmas, I think. We started kind of around Christmas in the new year. Uh, so I mapped it out with a few other little things. And uh, Easter Sunday, 2025, we will hit the resurrection. And then there will be, a, you know, a few messages after the resurrection, because Luke doesn't just go, and Jesus rose from the dead at the end. Uh, it kind of continues. But it's going to, this will take us to, uh, this, this series in Luke is actually going to take us until Easter 2025. Uh, so you can look forward to that. And yes, there will be a few interruptions in there. And it's all in pencil, because who knows what's going to happen between now and then anyway. So um, that's just kind of a rough thing, you know. Man plans his stuff, but God determines the steps, and that goes for Sunday morning uh, messages too. So, uh, Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> and Luke chapter 7 as a whole is Jesus demonstrating what he just taught just a few verses earlier in the Sermon on the Level, right? The Sermon on the Flat Place. Uh, a, a major component of this was mercy and showing love to everybody. If we go back uh, in verse 32 of chapter 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good. And land expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So Jesus teaches on this in Luke chapter 6, and then he demonstrates it in Luke chapter 7. Luke has, has pulled these uh, scenes from Jesus' life together uh, to, to show us kind of a, a, a picture of what it looks like to live out the sermon on the, on the level place. First, he heals a centurion servant. Now, if there's an enemy for the Jewish people in the first century, it's the Romans. Jesus is going beyond the, the culturally accepted boundaries here. And we'll see him do this more and more. He's going to raise somebody from the dead. And then in the next, uh, after, after we have a, a segment, and the pastor Ben's going to preach on this in a couple weeks, uh, the messengers from John the Baptist come because they see Jesus doing all this stuff. And John's a little confused. He's like, Messiah is supposed to be someone different. <clears throat> okay, Messiah is supposed to come in, raise an army, get rid of the Romans, uh, purge the temple, um, purify things, set up a geopolitical kingdom so we can rule the world and tell everyone what to do again. That's the goal for the Messiah. Jesus isn't hinting that that's on his agenda at all. 
In fact, he's doing the opposite. So far, we've seen Jesus free captives, heal the sick, touch and cleanse a leper, forgive sins, heal a paralytic, declare and demonstrate his authority over sin and Sabbath and over religious traditions. Jesus started his ministry by saying, this is what I'm about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I think, as I said, when we hit that passage, a key thing that Jesus does is he stops mid-sentence and mid-quote, and he doesn't add, and the day of the vengeance of our God. He is here, and his ministry is about declaring God's favor and his mercy and his kindness and his love. That's the key to his ministry. And we see that in our passage today. Let's stand as we read Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. <clears throat> Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine being in that funeral procession. Imagine that moment. They're at the city gate. Now that indicates that Nain had some sort of walled, uh, walls around the city and, and there would be a narrow gate through which people came and went, was where major transactions happened. And you've got a great crowd heading out to bury a young man. And in Jewish tradition, the mother would be leading the procession. So just imagine there's this great throng of people, and they're heading maybe out through this one door, and mom's leading the way. But then there's another crowd coming, <clears throat> and it's led by somebody else. <clears throat> this crowd of disciples and other people is led by Jesus, and they meet at the gate. What an amazing picture because another thing in Jewish custom is that you bury your dead the day they die. Like there's no waiting time. There's, there's a death, there's a quick preparation, and then there's a burial. And then there's some processes that happen afterwards. But 
Usually the burial happens on the day of death. So this is very fresh and very painful for this poor lady and this widow. And these two groups meet. Now this is the only time in Scripture that Nain is mentioned. This town. It's 25 miles southwest of Capernaum where Jesus just was. It's a good day or so. Remember, no buses, no transit, no cars. We're walking. 25 mile walk. And it's the only time Jesus goes to Nain. And it's the only thing that happens at Nain. Jesus was there for one reason only. This is the sovereign timing of God in his life. Because he would have had to leave Capernaum probably before this man died. Now, did Jesus have to travel this way to do this miracle? No, we just saw that with the Roman centurion servant. My servant's deathly sick. He's about to die. I, I don't even deserve to have you in my home. And Jesus says, You're, that's it. That's all I need. I haven't even seen this much faith in Israel. And in that moment, the centurion's servant is healed at a distance. But Jesus travels to Nain, and a, uh, a funeral procession meets a messianic procession and a funeral procession turns into a street party. Funeral procession turns into a street party. That's what uh, James Edwards in his commentary titles this whole passage. Oh, that's a great title. <clears throat> only Luke tells us of this. This is the only time Nain is mentioned. Now Charles Spurgeon says, look at the sovereign timing of all the things that had to come into to, to play for Jesus to arrive at the moment that this funeral procession was going out. This is God's sovereign timing. Two crowds meet, one led by Jesus, one led by a grieving mother. And Luke sets up this beautiful picture for us as we can see these two crowds coming toward one another and the two people leading it meeting A young man has died, the only son. The only son, and the Greek word here suggests the same as in kind of John 3.16. And not just her only son, maybe she had daughters, but only child, only descendant. And she was a widow. This would leave her in a very vulnerable situation in this time and place. It would leave her economically destitute, socially kind of on the outside of everything. Her life in many ways was over as she led this funeral procession to. And then verse 13. Circle the pronoun her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. The story isn't about raising the son, it's about healing a wounded heart through the raising of a son. There's really two main characters in this passage, Jesus and a grieving mother. 
When Jesus saw her, he saw her. He saw her in her pain and in the situation. He saw everything about what was going on. And it ripped his insides apart. The word for compassion here is deep emotional angst and pain. It ripped him up. Now, we don't know much about Jesus' life prior to his ministry. Joseph has disappeared off the pages by this time. Jesus on the cross takes care of Mary as an oldest son must when the father has already died. Jesus has probably already gone through a number of funerals in his life. Infant mortality was very common in these days too. How many brothers and sisters may Mary and Joseph have lost in the in-between the in as well? We don't know. But we know that Jesus at 33 would have already seen a fair amount of funerals. And it always, always moves him deeply when death is present. We see that at the tomb of Lazarus in John's Gospel where he weeps and is deeply moved. Compassion for the reality that death is part of what is going on in the world because of sin. He has deep compassion on her and says to her, do not weep. Imagine you had lost a child and somebody comes into the funeral and just says, hey, don't cry. Really? Only Jesus could say this kind of thing and it have any weight and not have a a condescending, bitter. The response would be so different if it was anybody but Jesus saying that, right? Don't weep. It's the only thing he says to her. Remember back in the Sermon on the Plain, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then he came up and he touched the buyer. The Numbers 19.11 tells us that anyone who touches anything that has touched anything uh, that a dead thing has been on becomes ceremonially unclean. In the case of Jesus, none of that is ever true because he can touch a leper and he can touch a dead body and that uncleanness doesn't transfer to him but his power makes that thing clean and whole again. And Jesus can touch the most broken and damaged thing and it not affect him because he affects healing and renewal and restoration and a new beginning. He touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. He stops the whole procession. And he says to you, young man, I say to you, arise. Or better, be raised. It's passive. It's not something he can do on his own. Dead people don't just get up. It has to come from something else. 
few things to note, I think, about this that are interesting. No one asked Jesus to act. This is an unsolicited miracle. There is absolute silence but for the tears of this grieving woman. Jesus is not asked, he just acts in response to what he sees. He comes up, he touches the buyer, the bear stood still, and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. That detail that he began to speak, we don't, again, we don't know what he said. I wonder what he said. What would be the first words out of the, the, the mouth of somebody who had died and had come back to life? I wonder. Not important, apparently. The dead man sat up and he began to speak, just evidence that he was alive and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Uh, here's another interesting thing. Jesus issues no follow-up command, no instruction, not a word. There is no call to leave Nain and follow him. He simply gives the son back to his mother and exits the scene. Like, like Jesus isn't part of it after that. There's no like, and then they went to their house and they had dinner and he preached a sermon and they had an altar call and, and, and he just does this and then he, he's off somewhere else. We don't know where he, you know, we'll see maybe in a while where he went. This is all he does. He comes to name for this one purpose in this one moment. Amazing. Jesus gave him back to his mother. This is word for word from 1 Kings 17.23 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He gave him back to his mother was what Elijah did when the widow's son had died. There's a lot of parallels here. Elijah, Elijah was staying with, with this, the woman of Zarephath and he, uh, her son in time dies and he comes back and she's like, oh great, Like I've housed the man of God and yet my son's dead. What good was that? And, and then uh, Elijah takes the, 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 the young boy up to a, a room and uh, he prays and he lays on the boy three times and he's praying, oh God, would you please have mercy? God, would you have mercy? God, would you have mercy? And the son comes back to life and then Elijah gives him back to his mother. A lot of similarities here, but a key difference. Elijah had to pray repeatedly and do some fairly extreme things, laying across the corpse of this boy three times. And he had to just asked God, he had to beg God to do something about the situation. Jesus just had to speak and it was over. Jesus just had to say, get up. And it was complete. And so the response, the people see this, they hear this, and they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. It's probably remembering that Elijah story. Or Elisha, 2 Kings 4, very similar. And God has visited his people because they also see the depth of compassion that happened here. This is an amazing event 
God has visited his people back in Luke uh, chapter 1. The song of Zechariah starts and ends with the visitation of God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then at the end, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the pathway of peace. And and peace is shalom, wholeness, fullness of life that God intends for us. And it is this visitation of God that people are declaring. And the report about him spreads through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You think? This is something amazing. What do we see in this passage for us today? In the person of Jesus Christ, we find deep, deep compassion. And because of that, I think two realities we need to remember, and it may not it may not manifest itself in our lives right now, today, but ultimately it will. Because of Jesus' compassion and because the fact that he has already defeated death, grief is temporary and death is not the end. Our grief today is temporary and death is not the end. I've been using this saying a fair amount over the last year. It came out of a a book, and I can't even remember what the title of it is right now. Um, But the the very last chapter of the book is the worst-case scenario. For a follower of Jesus, what is the worst-case scenario you can possibly imagine? The worst-case scenario is Revelation 2.4, 22 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That's as bad as it gets for us. The eternal compassion of God where grief is removed and death is gone. Now often we hear the word pain and we think physical pain, so but in this passage, look at, look at the context in Revelation 22, 4. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. I believe that's emotional, heart pain. Because the rest of the verse, that's what it's talking about. For the former things have passed away. Because everything is made new in Christ. And that's what Brother Abe Reference this morning too. We are new creations in Christ. Actually, it's 21, sorry. Revelation 21, verses 1, verse 4, and then verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first earth and the first heaven had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down out of heaven 
from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the person and the compassion of Jesus, grief is temporary and death is not the end. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. John 1, 4, in him the word made flesh was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 5, 21, for as the Father raised raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Grief is temporary and death is not the end. We will dwell in his presence. And that is the determining factor. That is the heart of this passage too. It is the compassionate presence of Christ that makes all the difference, that changes a funeral procession to a street party. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are delights forevermore. Lord Jesus, I thank you that because of your death on the cross, we can have life in you. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this? Jesus asked Martha. Every time Jesus raises someone from the dead in the Gospels, he always calls them by name. He speaks to them. He doesn't speak about them. Young man, get up. Lazarus, arise. Talithakum, little girl, get up. They are not unconscious, separate, hard to explain, but Jesus always speaks directly to the person as if they're still alive, and they are. And they return to a living, breathing body. Lord, many of us over the last number of years have attended funerals. We've had many here. And Lord, it would... It's almost hard to read a passage like this because... You wonder, why not now? And why do we have to wait? Lord, help us to put our hope completely in you. And 1 Thessalonians says, I don't want you to weep. Weep, yes, weep. Mourn over death because death is horrible. This wasn't the way you were designed to exist. But at the last call at the trumpet of God when 
The dead are raised first, and we are caught up to meet them in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever, and that is the key, that we will be with you. Yeah, we'll be reunited with loved ones, but it's nothing compared to being with you face to face. And our hearts may not understand that right now. But Lord, may we treasure you above all, and may we find in you the love and the compassion that we need in the midst of our pain and our grief right now in this earth. Thank you, Lord, that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive with Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. There's no way a dead person can come to life again on its own accord and made on a decision. Neither could we. If we are walking in sin and if we are refusing Jesus Christ, then we are dead. And so, Lord, I pray for those here today or who may be listening online that, Lord, you would do the work that only you can do and you would call them by name and call them to yourself and speak life into them and that they would respond and that they would not only hear that voice but would rise. Get up. And move in the life that you have provided for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the life you give and the life you gave so that we can have life in you. May we be amazed at your compassion and where we need it, may you meet us there today. In Jesus' name, amen.